0: Welcome to McLean's pop culture podcast, The Thrill, for the week of July 17. On this week's show, Dave Chappelle storms Montreal. The comedy superstar is opening up a huge run of shows at Montreal's Just for Laughs Festival, the place that helped him get off the ground, and also the place that hosted one of his first shows after his 2013 comeback. We'll talk to festival runners both past and present to talk about discovering Dave and why he's still important today. Then, the stars of Polaris, the shortlist of Canada's big music prize just came out, Who made it? Who didn't? And what's it like to be in the room deciding that prize? We're joined again this week by Michael Barclay, who's a jury member to help us handicap the field. And Minion Mania, the adorable sidekicks from Despicable Me have gotten their own movie, but can cute foils hold their own in a movie? Emma and I debate the value of cute over character. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And Julia's busy gallivanting in India, but this is still the thrill. Hey guys, I know we don't uh, usually pop in at this point of the podcast, but uh, we are asking you guys to help us out if you have a chance. It'd be really great for uh, our show to get some reviews on iTunes. It's a great way for us to uh, get out there more, have people more aware of us.
1: So if you want to give us some reviews, you can give us five stars. Five or stars are great. One star. Five stars are better. <laughs> uh, we would really appreciate it.
0: It'd be great. So just hop on iTunes, hop on the old iTunes machine. Uh, whichever device you have, be really great. We would love it. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. Dave Chappelle is without question one of the biggest comedy stars in the world, propelled there by his stand-up and his massive hit show, The Chappelle Show. Then suddenly, he vanished, walking away from his show and his big-time life for years. And while he's begun to return to stand-up comedy over the last few years, the myth and the mystery surrounding him is unlike any comedian, arguably. Bruce Hills was the chief programmer at Montreal's Just for Laughs Festival in 1992, when Dave was just a young teen trying to break into the field. And Robbie Praus, is the festival's chief programmer today, the guy who helped bring him out of retirement in 2013. Both of them join me now. Hey, guys, how are you?
2: Very good. How are you? Good.
0: Uh, Bruce, I wanted to start with you. Uh, So take me back when you first came across uh, the Dave Chappelle tape, when you first came across Dave Chappelle.
2: Well, I I used to live about a block and a half from the office, which, uh, uh, and every night I would carry back a big box of VHS tapes. That's how old I am. (laughs) Um, And I would go through them and watch all the comedians that, uh, you know, were trying to get into the festival. And most of the tapes were not very good. Um, And once in a while, you hit something great. And I don't think, uh, you know, uh, not as often as you would like. But one night I put in a tape and uh, Dave Chappelle walks out, does seven minutes on one of these shows in front of a brick wall. And it's seven of the smartest, most original minutes I've ever seen, let alone from someone I've never heard of. Um, and then another performance starts. And normally what you see on a tape like this from an up-and-comer uh, is that they're going to perform the same set again just for another TV audience. He performs another 7 minutes. That's even better than the first. And I looked and I said, oh, my God, that is bookable on the spot. Mm. Uh, we only had a handful of spots in those days. Now we bring 250 comedians to so the festival. I think then we booked 50. And I found the phone number on the tape, and it was, I found that it was his manager's na- uh, number, and I called that guy that night, which we rarely do. I don't think I ever did, actually, and said, uh, who is this guy? We want him, uh, and we'll put him in the festival this year. And that was in 1990. I think in advance of the '93 festival, mm-hmm.
0: and so uh, you know, in the intervening years, have you experienced that kind of quality in other comedians that kind of suddenly take notice and I immediately got to have him?
2: Well, you know what, we, we've, we've, I think the team watched a tape of Jim Jeffries ten years ago when we were looking for someone for our nasty show, and it was obvious that guy was funny and, and nasty and bookable, but not to this level. Chappelle's tape, you know, Chappelle's performance on that tape was just. Uh, spectacular one-of-a-kind and uh you know um you know a, 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 as everyone knows the rest is history and again listen we're not the only place that gave dave some love early in his career we're just we're we're one of the first mm-hmm. that uh, that believed in him and and gave him uh, the exposure of the festival and uh thankfully it, it it he benefited uh from it and we couldn't be happier mm-hmm.
0: so what was that first show like then the one that he did in uh, in the 93 show i guess
2: well, he went on one of our club shows at uh, a venue called Club Soda, which at the time was on Park Avenue, um, right in the middle of uh, Mile End, and um, he killed. No, no, no surprise. And afterwards, he said, "Hey, you know what? If you mind, if you don't mind, I'd like to perform for the audience leaving, and uh, you know, put my hat out because I'm a street performer in New York. Because before I was able to go into a, a venue that served booze." Uh, you know, in my early teens, uh, I had to perform outdoors uh, to, to, you know, to get stage time um, and also to help me a great deal. You know, anyway, blah, blah, blah. We said, no problem. Anyway, uh, come back down 20 minutes later, he's still killing in front of 200 people. And I think he made more money off in that hat than he did from us to perform on the show.
0: Um, you, you talked about how Montreal, you know, is just one of the festivals that, that gave him sort of that early start. and but And yet it seems like Montreal... Uh, certainly has meaning for him. I mean, uh, Robbie, you're you know you helped, I guess, get him to do one of his first big uh, standup shows back in 2013, right? What what did you say to him that 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 uh, made him come to, come back to Montreal?
3: Well, I think in the last uh, many years, just for Last in Montreal has become truly comedy camp from comedians from Kevin Hart to Louis C.K. to the up and coming comedians. So I think that. You know, it's not really um, about what we said. It was just, uh, you know, Dave being, feeling ready to come back and to be in an environment where there were so many uh, comedians and, and industry. And, you know, the fact that he came back into that environment and did so exceptionally well. It's just a testament to, you know, there's a, you know, people believe that Chappelle vanished. Chappelle didn't vanish. Chappelle just did his own thing for many years. You know, he's been showing up in comedy clubs, doing theaters. I think what we're seeing in the last few years is uh, potentially, you know, him doing things a little more conventionally, you know, and doing more dates, like what he did at Radio City Music Hall last year when Mm -hmm. he sold out 10 shows. But um, here's a guy who not only is back doing stand-up comedy regularly, um, I had the opportunity of seeing him in November in Carolina. And remember, we just had Dave two years ago, so we weren't rushing necessarily to have uh, have him back. I just wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to see my favorite comedian uh, do a set in Carolina. And it was, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, probably the best, Uh, hour and a bit of stand-up comedy that I've seen in the last five years. So then what this became was more not having Dave back at the festival, which of course we're always thrilled to have. It was about How can we have a comedy festival this year and this amazing, relevant piece of stand-up comedy is touring right now? Well, we need to have that at our festival. So the first time it was about getting Dave back, this year it was more about getting to the festival that phenomenal piece of work that he's touring right now.
1: He's obviously a big name, like a Hall of Fame comic, but I'm not sure that, despite what you just said, that anyone... uh, thinks of Dave Chappelle as at the top of his game like they did maybe when the Chappelle show was airing in the mid 2000s, which was, of course, at the time, the ultimate comedic zeitgeist. And I've I've heard some stories of his recent shows that are kind of like half jokes and half rants where people feel generally uncomfortable and don't laugh. And I, I wonder how much of his appeal now is just to kind of say that you've seen him for past greatness. Like I kind of think of him as the comedic Lauren Hill. What do you guys think about that?
3: Um, to be frank, I don't think it's true. I think that what's happening is, and I saw it with my own eyes, of course, so it's easy for me to say that, but you know, what's happening is is Dave admittedly has had a few gigs in the last few years um, that, have ha- that have not gone well. There's two gigs. There was one in Detroit and one in Hartford in which he was tremendously heckled. And then the show turned into something a little bit different. Generally, the experience, though, uh, with Dave right now, is he is back doing the top stand of comedy. And that is what happened at um, Radio City Music Hall. You know, uh, all the reviews there were extremely positive. Um, And and I'm telling you, this thing that I just saw in Carolina was, uh, one of the best things that I've ever seen. Now, to your point, though, Dave Chappelle is a completely different comedian than a lot of comedians out there. That if you go out to see him every night, that you're, you know, that you're seeing guaranteed the same show that was in, you know, Nashville one night, and you know the next night at the city over, it's going to be the exactly same show. Dave Chappelle is prolific, so I think it's true that some people, there has been a little bit of different experiences out there. But in terms of the stand-up comedy that he's doing um, in, in, for the last year and a half, it's been exceptionally well-reviewed, um, with a few shows as exceptions, for sure, because he's willing to take risks on stage that a lot of other comedians aren't willing to, to do. You know? so um, I, And that's why, to be, to be honest, and I appreciate you asking the question, why we're so urging people to come see him in Montreal this year, because we feel what he's doing is so special. That if some people have that opinion of Dave, we urge them tremendously to come uh, this year and be awed on how you have a guy who's one of the greatest doing some of his greatest material that he's ever done. It's really a sight to be seen.
0: We talked about the the idea that he vanished or whatever. And, uh, you know, maybe he did. Maybe he did sort of, like you say, just sort of go off and do his own thing. But I interested in the idea that there is this there's no question, I think, this myth about Dave Chappelle. And what do you think? Yeah. What do you think explains that myth?
3: I think that it's very rare when somebody has one of the top TV shows and can make an unbelievable amount of money doing whatever they want to decide that what they want to do is show up in a city three days before, fill a comedy club, you know, not do the typical big promoter across the world, big tour that generates millions of dollars. He just decided not to do that, but he was still. You know, around in comedy clubs constantly. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is he certainly left popular culture for years. That's, and that's what's led to this feeling of, hey, if I could see Chappelle tonight, I really should get those tickets and go. Because you don't know when he will, you know, emerge, essentially, I think is what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never really left the business, he just left doing hugely promoted gigs, you know, doing the special that you expect him to do, angling to get a new TV show, I mean, that's the industry that we live in, that everyone's always going for the next big thing, Instead, he said, I'm at the top of the game with the Chappelle show right now. I believe he was uncomfortable with the direction that he was going, so he left that life um, he raised his amazing, helped raise his amazing family, by the way, too. That's part of the conversation. He's been living in Ohio, I believe. Um, this is a very different guy. And the fact that he is now motivated and excited to do the gigs like Montreal, or he's going to London next week to do a, you know a huge sold-out run at the Hammersmith, in London, that's exciting. As as you can tell, I'm a little bit of a comedy nerd. <laughs> it's so exciting that he's embracing those big things again, mm. and I'm excited to see not only what you know him and the festival this summer, but what what Dave Chappelle's world will look like in the next five years. Because I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of him.
0: So Dave Chappelle comes to Montreal starting July 20th, a set that's been expanded to a slate of 10 shows now, uh, maybe even more after we're done recording. Uh, Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's the 10th anniversary of the Polaris Prize, Canada's most interesting music award. Rather than focus on sales or popularity, like the higher-profile Junos, the Polaris was created to celebrate Canada's top album based on artistic merit, as judged by a cabal of music writers who whittle the year's best work down. On Friday, the shortlist came out, and it included mainstays like rapper Drake and electronic artist Caribou. But as it so often does, there were surprises, like singer-songwriter Jennifer Castle. Michael Barclay is a Polaris Prize juror, and he's seen the battles that happened behind closed doors as music nerds geek out over their favorite album. Thanks for joining us, Michael.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Let's start by talking about the importance of the award. Why is the Polaris Prize something we're talking about uh, right now?
4: Uh, we're talking about it because it is different than the Junos. The Junos is kind of um, th- the nominations in the large categories of the Junos. Anyway, the Junos that get televised, et cetera, are based on sales. So it's always the best selling records of the year. So that's why Nickelback will always be there. That's why uh, all the, the top, you know, the the Michael Buble's, um, yeah, all the people who, who sell hundreds of thousands of records get nominated for Junos. And those people are not excluded from the Polaris process, and there have been extremely popular people nominated for Polaris before, but it's voted on uh, by critics who, like me, spend all day listening to new records all the time. So uh, Polaris is considered an even playing field for the artist who does not have a huge promotional budget, the artist who is not on the radio, uh, an artist who can be vaulted out of nowhere, like has happened in the past with uh, Zaki Ibrahim, a Canadian expat living in South Africa, whose record wasn't even released in Canada, but had a few uh, critics who were fans in Canada and, uh, and vaulted it right onto the shortlist by generating discussion among other critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it also elevates um, kind of outlier experimental artists like Colin Stetson, who's been on the shortlist twice, uh, experimental solo saxophone music, not the most commercial of genres. Um, and it puts that right beside uh, bands um, uh, like Whitehorse or like Owen Pallet or people who've done very well play uh, large festival slots across Canada and the world.
0: Uh, there is this mosaic quality to it. I, I feel like uh, one of the jurors, who is my friend, actually friend of the show, Josh O'Keane, he uh, only got one of his five shortlisted entries in there, and it's one of those things where really your entire, like, I mean, any any jurors' entire list really is rarely going to be represented, uh, and I think that's a remarkable thing. Uh, and I think part of that is the idea of this based on artistic merit thing. What does that really mean? I feel like this is kind of an argument in every year about what artistic merit. Really means well. It's
4: bogus for mm-hmm. starts. It's uh, it's your own personal bias. The imposition is that it is that it's not based on sales, as the Junos are. Right. It's not based on profile. People who uh, take issue with the Player's Prize will say, well, well, critics only listen to uh, records that get a lot of promotion. The records made by artists who have enough money to pay a publicist to bug them about all that stuff. I mean, I ignore publicist emails all the time. It actually, you know, I listen to music that I find interesting. That. Uh, I hear about through other channels, um, a lot of music journalists, uh, sure, maybe they're lazy and they don't click on everything in their inbox, but it's certain stuff does get attention and gets word of mouth, um, and that stuff enters the player's discussion. So, artistic merit, other people, I mean, I personally have a policy that I get five votes, five, uh, five spots on my ballot, I don't want anything on my ballot to sound the same. So if there are five singer-songwriters that put out amazing records this year, I'm not going to put five singer-songwriters on my ballot. I want to know what hip-hop record interests me the most, what electronic record, what you know. I'm I'm thinking about. Uh, I don't care about uh, geography or 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 gender or other things, but in terms, I want my ballot to to be representative of what I think is is the the diversity of Canadian music.
1: How do you think the artists themselves perceive the award, or the, the Canadian music community at large?
4: I think all artists um are suspicious of awards until they're nominated. Um uh, because it is again it's kind of ridiculous. It's it's the thing that whenever an artist thanks me for a good review like thank you for your support I I say well you're welcome. I I thank you for making a good record. Mm-hmm. Um but by the same token if you believe me when you agree with me then you will you then have to believe me when I diss your record like I'm just a guy with an opinion and I listen to a lot of things. So you know, by all means, accept praise, but uh, that also means that you're you're likely to be hurt if you don't make the shortlist. One, yeah, you know. I
1: feel like that principle applies to any award show. It's like the award mm. matters when you win. When yeah. you don't, it's all political. I mean, of course, yeah. doesn't, you know, doesn't <laughs> exactly. mean anything.
4: But I do, from what I'm talking to artists who have been nominated in the past, they do uh, they do value it because they do know that it's uh, comes from a very genuine place on the part of the jurors. Whereas there's been stories about the Junos where if you work for a major record label, they hand you your ballot and certain things are already ticked off for you because it's block voting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want our artists to win. So you can vote for any any category where our our artists are not nominated. But you
2: know.
1: Yeah, I've always been curious about that process. Like, I know that with major awards ceremonies like um, the Grammys or maybe the Junos also, artists can campaign. Mm-hmm. What does that mean exactly? Do you know? Like a, they just
4: to want to win. be known. Like they just want to like for the Oscars, people want they want their film to be seen so they can see what an amazing performance so and so gave. Um and uh I mean that certainly happens at Polaris too. Uh usually way too late. I mean the deadline is is the end of May and, you know, second week of May I start getting emails from publicists say hey, here's all the records we put out this year. It's like, Oh really? Actually I take my job seriously as a juror and I've been keeping track all year. You don't need to like think that something's going to in out of nowhere. In case you're only thinking about this now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In case you're an Oscar voter who only <laughs> thinks of films at Christmas time. Um, uh, but the other thing about Polaris is that there's this wild card element and that it's not at all democratic. The list is. However, the actual award, the winner in September, is decided by 11 people locked in a room mm-hmm. during the gala. Um, and they are there to hash it out and and have the geekiest music argument you've ever seen in your life. And these are and because they've been tasked with this, you can guarantee that those 11 people have listened to these records constantly for the month prior and they have extremely informed opinions whereas you know nobody knows how how much work any individual juror is putting into their ballot. They might do it in the middle of May. They might be like me geekily every month. here's the records. I love this. This month, I'm going to try and remember this later. And you
1: know. so, what would that conversation look like yeah. in that room? Could you give us an example, even using mm-hmm. artists who have been up for it? Yeah, like, and you've in been the in there, right?
4: I've been in there. I was in there the year that Feist won. Um, and uh, so, what happens is um, you have uh, eleven people talking about ten records. Each person has been chosen for a variety of reasons: uh, geography and 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 uh, gender. And every person in that room has had one of those records on their ballot. So technically, every one of those records has a champion in the room. Uh, and then there's like a, 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 a floater, someone who voted for several of them or someone who did, voted for none of them. And that year, I was considered the floater because I had a couple of them I liked. And I actually liked uh, pretty much everything on the shortlist that year. Um, and then you get in there and you immediately vote. You write down three records out of the 10. And then they tally those up and they drop the bottom five. So then you're really only arguing about five. Uh, and then you argue for a little bit, and then they do another vote, and they, then they knock two more off, and then you do one final vote, then you leave the room. You don't know. The jurors find out at the same time as everyone else in the room who won. So you know you leave the room, and everyone's like, oh, what happened? And you're like, I... No idea. First of all, I'm bound to sl- secrecy. <laughs> Second of all, uh, I, was, ever... I was wrong the year I, I was in there. I predicted it wrong. I thought Drake would win it, and Feist won it.
1: In order to determine what you think the best album is, though, would you ever sort of count up all of the good songs on an album? Like some albums, you would think that all of the songs are excellent, On some there are...
4: Sure, well, I mean, every juror has different uh, things. Like there's, uh, I mean, some some classic albums have crappy songs on them, you know, like London Calling has crappy songs on it, Born to Run has crappy songs on it, Nation of Millions has crappy songs on it. It's... uh, Why are you voting for this record? Do you think it is is every minute of music is amazing on this record? If so, that's a great sign. Or is it that this sounds so refreshing and new? Or do you feel like this is uh, uh, what the artist tried to achieve? Do you think it's representative of something? There's all sorts of subjective things that go into this. And I mean, even in that room with 10 other people, I I heard some crazy arguments that were so incredibly subjective. Like, this sounds like music that you hear at a fashion show. I'm like, yes, and so what? <laughs> like. You know, and I've probably said some ridiculous things as well. I yeah. said that Drake was a Republican record. i you know, like the hyperbole gets notched up when you get you know we've all had barroom conversations where people fight about these things. So um uh, all those factors go into it, and it is incredibly subjective. so it's an interesting. What makes the players quite different is it all depends on who those people are. And every year that changes and they've never repeated a juror. I don't know when they will have to. It's been 10 years now and the number of music critics in Canada keeps shrinking. Um, so right now no one's done it more than once. So every year it depends on who's in that room.
0: So Drake is an interesting touch because he has never, so he's never won the players. He's been shortlisted. Twice. Uh, twice. Uh, but he's sort of this great reflection of it because uh, there's always it's always great because you know every time I look at the player shortlist, there's always one or two people I just have never heard of before, mm-hmm. and i you know raises their profile and mm-hmm. all that's good. But there's always that backlash of oh you know this artist is too famous to win the player's mm-hmm. prize, and I think that's odd. You know it happened also to Arcade Fire even. They were. Uh, they, it's true, but there was that there was that backlash of the of like oh are they too big to to mm-hmm. win. Uh, is that something that people meaningfully think about, like the idea of you should be a lesser known quality to win the Polaris Prize?
4: All sorts of people have those biases, but mm-hmm. um, I can say, I, so the year I was there, both Feist and Drake were on the short list, and that is not what we talked about. And if anybody got into that kind of thing, uh, Steve Jordan, the founder, is there, as well as James Keese, who's who helps run the jury, um, then they'll step in and go, hey... That we are not talking about that now in the back of the mind of every juror that might be there and that might be their own bias. Like Drake doesn't need the money, mm-hmm. The doesn't need the money argument comes up every year no matter who is nominated. Um, that's not the point. That's not you're not. This is not a charity. This is not a grant application. This is a prize. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm really curious if those kind of conversations happen in Giller Prize converse, uh, juror conversations. You know, like the, those are the Giller is more of an analog to to than you know the Junos or or. Um, Oscars or something like that. Um, But are they too famous to win? I don't know. Um, And with something like Drake again, uh, the year I was there, we were talking about Take Care. And um, you and I can fight about Drake a different time. (laughs) But one of my complaints about that record is it's 78 minutes long and it's so difficult to listen to the entire thing. So, uh, you know, that can work against you. Back to your question, like, does every minute have to be great? And they're you know, there are people who would argue, well, what is great about Take Care is not those five or six extraneous tracks. It's those other things that push everything forward and blah, 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 blah. So those are the kind of conversations you have. In the history of players, I would argue only two famous people have won it, and that's Arcade Fire and
0: Feist. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Take Care is a triumph in track sequencing, but uh, we'll have that argument a different time. <laughs> uh, so what's st- what stands out to you about the shortlist this year? What's uh, what, are, what are your surprises? What are your takeaways?
4: Um... There's a lot of surprises. I always expected always to be on it. Um, the transplanted Maritimers in Toronto uh, rock band. Um, critical favourite, popular favourite. Uh, that was always going to be on
0: there. express.
4: Bad, Bad, Not Good. Um, I was not surprised because I heard a lot of jurors talking on the private um, message group. Um, I, I'm a little bit surprised because I, I think it's okay. I really liked their third album, um, and this was recorded before they made three. Uh, it also features Ghostface Killer from the Wu-Tang Clan, so there's inevitably, especially after this week in Toronto, uh, going to be conversations about an American's role in a Canadian prize. Um, some of which also came up in the past when Colin Stetson a born American who moved to Montreal um, was not with short this devices
0: Simple minds get blown shut into pieces my thesis is thick like the book of Eli we live we die we put them in a the sky Free your mind as a slave like the fourth Buffy
4: St. marie I'm extremely excited about. I love this record. Um, I think she is the oldest person to make the short list.
0: 74 years old.
4: Yeah, there's been older people on the long list. Uh, Leonard Cohen and Neil Young at the time they were nominated, but uh, oldest person ever to make the short list. And it's a fantastic record. Mm-hmm. And for so many reasons, I'm excited about that. Previous winner, I think he's the only previous winner on this year's shortlist. Uh, he won in 2007, um, and uh, I loved his 2010 record, "Swim." I'm not as excited about this record. I don't know. Uh, I think, think there's some mixed feeling there.
1: I agree. I like the last one more too.
4: This is the first Dan Snaith record I have not really enjoyed. I liked his side project, Daphne, too. Um, yeah, but "Swim" is is so fabulous. Uh, uh, Drake, we just talked about. I don't think it'll win because it is, not just because I don't like him, it's because um, it is a mixtape and there's a lot of anticipation for views from The Six. I just think there's this notion that this is not a quote unquote real record from Drake. And, And even from Drake fans, I've heard very mixed things, I don't know. What are your thoughts on... Like, is it worthy? Would you give this Drake record a prize?
0: This is the first Drake album, I think, that uh, I would say... Well, I mean, the question is whether or not it's an album. Some people disagree. I think that it, it should qualify that should way. Qualify. Certainly, yeah, it's... Yeah. certainly it's. I mean, Bill just on yeah. Billboard charting alone. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is actually the first Drake album, I think, that would I would not say should win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm glad to see it shortlisted. I think that's as far as it should go, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. I think there are artistic qualities to it, but it is a bit of a throwaway uh, thing that's not necessarily a bad thing I just don't think it's as good as say the Buffy Mm -hmm. St. Marie album which I think should win Mm -hmm. if not that then the Always record
4: but yeah and then just quickly the other is Jennifer Castle Toronto singer-songwriter I'm very excited about a real grower I did not like this record at all Mm -hmm. hated this record at first to be honest with you Uh, then I spun it a bit more thought it was okay then I saw her live and then listened to it a bit more and now I love it love it and there's an example of, of just opinions shifting and evolving over time my views have evolved on Jennifer Castle
1: Between all the on
4: your Tobias Jessel Jr., brand new singer-songwriter from Vancouver. Spent some time around L.A., kind of hanging around kind of the Haim periphery. Um, and uh, it's subpar Billy Joel to me. I don't understand what it's doing on the list. I have no idea. Fair
0: enough.
1: Well, I'm going to be starting an indie band. Sorry. Oh. I know, you, I know you don't like that term. An indie rock band mm-hmm. called... Subpar Billy Joel. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, you be... will go very far. <laughs> Is it going to be a Billy Joel cover band?
1: Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh,
0: all right. Well, thanks, uh, Michael, for joining us. Let's all keep an eye out, I guess, for the prize itself.
4: The gala takes place at the end of September, twenty-first, I believe.
0: Cool. All right. We'll probably talk to you then. All right. Thanks. Despicable Me, the animated comedy about a super bad guy who turns into a super dad guy, is part of that modern film phenomenon. Something that kids will love, but is fun enough for adults too. And its success has borne that out. Despicable Me 1 and 2 were big box office hits, and a third installment is coming in 2017. But the stars of the franchise, let's be honest, have always truly been the minions. The yellow, nonsense-spewing, adorable pill-shaped creatures that helped and occasionally waylaid. The supervillain Gru's carefully hatched plans. Now, in a typhoon of branding and cuteness, they are the stars of their own movie, the despicable prequel Minions. Honestly, I can't believe it took them five years to make it. Emma, you watched this movie. What did you think of it?
1: I did watch this movie, not by choice. I have a very close friend who is obsessed with Minions. Um, she is a 26-year-old woman, not a child. <laughs> but she absolutely loves Minions. She she owns uh, several, like, thermoses wallets that are engraved with Minion creatures. Um, I did not like it, and I feel bad being a snob about Minions because I recognize that they it is a kid's movie. But I think that, that the appeal of the Minions in the Despicable Me franchise is that they are a garnish. They're not supposed to be the main event, so it's too much of a good thing. I sort of... Um, I was enjoying it at the very beginning, and just to, to sort of backtrack here, the the story uh, there really are no spoilers in in the Minions movie, but the story is that um, Minions have existed since the dawn of time, and their goal in life is to find an evil villain master who they can serve. So from it shows them from the you know the dawn of time. First, they serve the T Rex, but because they're so um, quarrelsome and they're always doing the wrong thing they're very uh, klutzy their villains often tire of them or they kill their villains by accident and so they try to move on to the next one so the the movie is about the minions um they end up in 1960s new york city and they are searching for their next supervillain to serve and it's very cute their their gibberish language which i think might be laced with some spanish i think it's a
0: bunch of languages i heard a bunch of different like i heard french in there
1: yeah like uh, when I was in the theater, there was a guy beside me who was speaking Spanish to his wife. And every once in a while when a minion would say something vaguely Spanish sounding, he would laugh hysterically and repeat whatever it was. So I have a feeling. They there's... definitely said que pasol. Yeah, so... they, they do say that. They also say muzzle tove at one point. Yeah, um, it's just
0: Esperanto really.
1: But yeah, I think that when there's a danger, when the sidekick becomes the main event, um, it's too much of a good thing. Uh, it's sort of like if Seinfeld were to do a, sp- a spinoff film or TV show called Kramer. Sounds like a great idea. Everybody loves Kramer. I have a feeling the result would not be so great.
0: It's like you're saying uh, in The Caesar, it's like eating eating the celery. But I happen to like celery.
1: That is not what I'm (laughs) saying That's 100%. I hear
0: you loud and clear, Emma. I think that's what you're saying. So I I had a different movie watching experience as you. Uh, You went with a friend. I went uh, to a children's movie by myself. And let me tell you, that's a weird time. This is the second movie actually in the last... Uh, like last month or so, that I went to go see a movie uh, made for children by myself. It's a weird time. You don't. You feel like you should have a child, and it's leery and uncomfortable. Um, and and you wonder why. Like there's parts of the movie where you're like, why won't you just kids be quiet? I'm trying to watch this film, please. Um, the other one was Inside Out, but the fact that I having just watched Inside Out actually made me appreciate Minions more. Just for what it is, I think that we're in a stage right now for popular culture where we have to, like, overthink everything and really dig deep and, like, what's the cultural meaning of this? And, hey, listen, we're on a pop culture podcast. I'm not going to, like, you know, I'm not going to shoot the very premise of why we're here. But at the same time, the Minions are kind of this, like, controversy-free thing that's just, it's just this, like, cute explosion of corporatized, like, adorableness. And I think to some degree that's fine. Like, isn't that that good enough?
1: That was kind of Anthony lane film critic for The New Yorker made it made that argument sort of in, when he reviewed Inside Out mm-hmm. he I don't think he disliked the movie but right. he said that it was in a way made more for adults yeah like th- it's a very complicated plot like it's been reviewed by you know psychologists and neuroscientists yeah. um, and, and I think a lot of Pixar and he, movies are he too. actually said that he thought some of the kids in the audience were a little bit bored so I don't know if that's true the kids in the audience where I was loved Inside Out but I think that you're right in terms of um, Minions being controversy-free and full of slapstick comedy and that's what a lot of kids like. Right. I have a list here of some other uh, sidekicks not necessarily Minion-like but famous sidekicks and I wonder if you think any of these would make for good uh, good protagonists in their own spin-off. Okay. So there's Ducky from Pretty in Pink. Uh, uh- there's Sebastian and the Little Mermaid Would
0: watch Would okay. watch that film like Where'd little, he come from? I want to know Little
1: Mermaid prequel starring Sebastian Or a sequel
0: where he's trying to escape It's like Ratatouille Like he's trying to yeah. not be eaten I'd watch that What
1: about Spock?
0: I feel like that must have been that done must there, exist there must somewhere. be episodes Yeah, there must be episodes yeah. Where Spock is the main character Pedro so, sure.
1: Sanchez and Napoleon Dynamite
0: No Because okay. I did not much care for Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> I can't imagine a more boring version of that film
1: Cal Naughton and Talladega Knights. <laughs> Some <laughs> of these deep. are very deep. <laughs> going deep on these sidekicks here. And Pumbaa and Timon—they must have their own spin-off. Uh, oh, they do. They, yeah, well, they
0: had—they uh, had a TV show, which uh, I wouldn't say I just would watch. I did watch as a child. Great, I love that. It was awesome.
1: Okay, Can't so it works it. sometimes, yeah. but maybe not this time. Um, but you
0: mentioned—but you mentioned the idea of, of slapstick, and I think that's interesting because. Uh, I think this movie is a real triumph of slapstick comedy uh, you know a lot of slapstick even when it was live like with Charlie Chaplin and stuff it was or The Three Stooges it's mute and silent and it's it's big acting and in animated uh, in animated films you can get away with more of that stuff and I think Minions really embraces that that really is what Minions is that mo like sixty percent of the movie is Esperanto gibberish. Uh and the fact that it can hold uh attention, not just hold it, but like really get it, I think is a triumph in, in slapstick comedy. In and in a field that really is the only place uh in film that can do it anymore. You don't really see slapstick live anymore any meaningfully. Uh what's good in comedy now is, you know, joke density. You just like jokes on jokes on jokes. But the fact that something uh quiet and silent Uh, more rather dialogue wise quiet and silent um can can be a success a huge box office i think says something good and there's movies like it too sean the sheep movie is coming out and i think that's very similar those are it's it's basically like quiet sheep and they're just acting big and i think that there's uh, there's a there's a nice quality to that that i i do like still seeing in a movie
1: all right. Yes, we've got a Minion fan here.
0: Yeah, listen. Join Why one were of the there many. no
1: women Minions? Oh, get out of Kevin here. Kevin, Stewart. It. I'm just joking.
0: Stop. Get out of here.
1: <laughs> Change dot, sign oh, my change.org God, petition no. for more female Minions.
0: Well, that's it for this week. We're on our summer schedule, we remind you, so our next episode will come on July 31st. Check it out, as always, at mcclanes.ca, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Beyond Pod. It would be super great and super helpful to us if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes. You can also tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Those podcasts are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title, you can follow Julia at Julia Del J, and me at Adrian Kaylee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.